the Forward Together podcast from Hollywood Trust with Paul Gosling and Jared Dean. Welcome to the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust um, and I am joined as always today by Paul Gosling. Hi, Jared. So, Paul, this is uh, the second part of our special, if you like, that we've had with Dennis Bradley. Um, This time, Dennis talks about, uh, I suppose, the big question, the big question about the constitutional conversation and where we need to head. That's right. In the previous conversation with Dennis, we heard all the way through Dennis itching to talk about the future of the constitutional status for Northern Ireland. And here is where we let him do (laughs) do it. Go on with it, yes. Okay. But he admits he doesn't know the answer. Ah, well, fair play to him. (laughs) As we said before, Dennis knows the questions, not necessarily the answers. Yeah, that's it. It does reflect, though, on the civic nationalist movement. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, he's, he's saying basically that uh, civic nationalism is getting its house in order in the terms mm. of having those conversations and recognises that, you know, we need civic unity. The whole of Northern Ireland, the whole of our society needs civic unionism to similarly move forward to actually have some of the big conversational discussion points. OK, and some of those conversations need to be had on... Brexit and the border, something else that Dennis touches on. That's right. And what we need to do is we need to get the two parts of civic society working together, talking together. Okay. Well, let's hear the second part of the interview with Dennis now. Now, you've made clear repeatedly that the thing that you really want to talk about is how we how we deal with the constitutional question yeah. without it inflaming situation yeah. uh, across the North. Well, that's the one that intrigues me because I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> I really don't know the answer to it. I think something very ha- important happened within the last couple of weeks and has not received the attention that perhaps you have. And that is that uh, the... Irish, well, but the Europeans uh, and the Irish, but particularly the Europeans, have said if there's a no deal situation, we will still have to deal with the Northern Ireland situation. That's a massive movement from where situations were at. Um, I was in the very early days, the Irish government brought over about 30 uh, correspondents from in the early days of Brexit and, and dined them. In the, in the hotel next door here and invited me to and I, I seldom go to those types of things seldom, seldom go there but I went that particular night and my argument to them was that I didn't think that there ever 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 could be a border in Ireland again I didn't think it was possible the border hadn't been there for at that stage what 95 years whatever it was and then having been away for 20 years I didn't think it was and it wasn't just because of the distance it was because of the local farmer the local shopkeeper the local child you know if you put up any kind of structure at all I didn't think it was survival and anyway we are all the border structures would be within green territory and therefore, what I mean by green territory is from here to Dundalk is basically, with a few exceptions, a few pockets, is basically a nationalistic homeland. So to think that you could do that is thinking that you can put the the cavalry of the old Western films out into the uh, Fort Summer, you know, and think that the Apaches will stand off. The Apaches won't have to stand off because the locals will just won't, won't, won't let it happen. That was my view. The difficulty I had within that was... 
I could hear the British government saying we won't impose a hard border. I could hear the all kinds of people saying we won't impose a hard border. But the one thing that was really worrying and annoying was if there was no deal, if there was no understanding, if there was no agreement, how could you have a single market sitting there and a non-single market sitting there? And that was my difficulty. And that was the one that, and I kept thinking, the Irish can't deal with that question because it is counter-cultural, counter-political. And the Europeans will find it difficult because of the single market and so forth. So right through all these discussions, there was references to that, but there was no real uptake of that massive question. So I think it's been interesting in the last two or three three weeks that the Europeans are saying uh, if there's no deal if there's a crash out the first, we will not deal with the British government until we solve this problem I think that brings us to a new place and to some degree uh, takes the sweat off Leo Varadkar's brow um, but I also think it's an understanding that we're different uh, and that that's what makes us different from Scotland who will have their own fight in this and they're, I think they're about to engage in that fight very soon in that I think that they will start within the next week or two calling for their second referendum uh, I think that I think the fascinating thing about Brexit is that it was an English construct and it is going to it is going to leave England incredibly unsettled for a long period of time now whether that's five years or ten years or a generation I do not the real question is for us is can we move beyond that unsettlement in England to actually engage at a real at a real and honest and radical engagement in this island um, and I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know the. I don't know the. the I, I have thrown out little things about what we need is an all Ireland forum. What we need is a this uh, conversations to start. What we need is uh, engagement from all the all the different parts of this island, but. I mean, I do that almost out of desperation in that I could equally see unionism. I I do see unionism's propensity to go back in on itself and at difficult moments not to engage because it is always, and I can understand why this is, um, I mean, they come from a position is that nationalism can lose 20 times or 40 times. Unionism can only lose once. So that's that makes them that makes them Manchester United under the last manager. Right? They become they will become incredibly defensive. And I have been trying to engage have conversations with people who I think understand unionism better than I will ever understand it to see if there is any opening up, if there's any 
cracks within that kind of defensive propensity to see if there's any willingness to move out beyond them, beyond the old given history. And there are days I think, oh yes, you know, the farmers are moving, the industry's moving, commerce is moving, uh, all that type of thing in one hand. And then other days I think, I don't know if they're moving at all. You know, they're moving to a degree, but I'm not too sure that they will move. Because there appears to me to be three, there appears to me to be three unionisms. There's the DUP, who are very solid within themselves. I'm not too sure that they're very sure where they're at at the moment, but that's at the moment. But in the overall, you know, the pressure union, first union, second, and union third, and nothing else uh, will engage us. The other group of that is those who are not DUP, can Austro unionists, some of the Alliance Party, that type of thing, who are just trying to have a presence and will go where they think is a possible place. Uh, but we'll be very attached to the union and we'll be afraid of that situation that if we, we're only losing once and then that's gone. And the third are the loyalist groupings. Now, my contact with loyalism over the last 20 years has been substantial and they have been very angry with the DUP because they feel betrayed by the DUP and they feel that the DUP looks down their nose at them. And I think they are much less willing to be radicalized into, you know, we will create havoc on the streets if we, you know, have, if we lose the precious union or precious unions under threat. But then again, the people I'm talking to are kind of a bit like myself, they're getting old. So I don't know what's happening in the in the subterrain of, the, of, of loyalism. And unionism has used loyalism throughout the years because unionism likes to see itself as a law and order. Uh, people. So I'm not too sure what's happening in there. Um, and loyalism, of course, is very split as well. Very split. Of course, it's very split. When you talk about an All Ireland Forum, I mean, how do you see that as being organised? How do we get towards an All Ireland Forum? Do we go for a big bang or do we say, well, there should be, you know, maybe three different types of fora, one in the south, one for nationalists and republicans in the north, and another for civic unionism in the north? and then they merge at some point? Or do we go all out to have that conversation between all the interested parties? Before I go there, let me just deal with unionism. I'm never very sure with you. I've worked with a lot of unionist people, and I've worked with the DUP. And sometimes the wrong thing to do, in my opinion, is to bow the knee to their intransigence because sometimes I think they don't like people who bow the knee to their intransigence there is a a tension here that I think needs clarified in in people's heads well at least clarified I don't know if if it can be really engaged but Sinn Féin and the strong party on the Nationalist Republican side in Ireland around the around the referendum around the, the uh, border poll, and they're the ones who are calling for it. The southern governments and the southern parties are saying this is crazy. 
not the right time is not the right way to go about it so there's a conflict in, in there there's a bit of tension in there the difficulty in that is that of course it's a wrong time and it's crude it's simplistic and crude and wrong to have a border poll now which would kind of you know say there's one more voter for for United Ireland than there is for that that's as crude as you can get the difficulty is that if you take that off the table I'm not convinced unionism will move at all it will stay within its own narrow ground it won't move out into into engagement so in fact I think that the border poll or the possibility of a border poll at least challenges unionism and I think Peter Robinson was hinting at that. I think Peter Robinson was, was prepared to look at that and kind of trying to make his people ready for that. That's maybe a strong statement, but at least he was writing, putting something down on that. Um, that One of my disappointments is that that hasn't been followed through much by many people within unions. Robinson seemed to be this kind of lone voice, and then we haven't heard much else coming for coming forth. Um, the thing is, I think it was Colin Eastwood who, who made a statement which I thought had a lot of validity with it. He said it's very hard to have a conversation with people who don't want to talk to you, right? and there is a question that needs a little bit of answering is is there anybody is are there institutions is there civic society within unionism which is prepared to talk right you see nationalism will talk behind whatever the hind tipped off a cow whatever I don't know what the expression is the hind leg of a cow isn't that what it is um, but unionism appears not to do that doesn't appear to engage in that type of thing apart from a few, you know, there's a few people, of course there are, but in general it doesn't appear to do that. And I'm not too sure how you get that happening. And until that happens, it's very hard to judge which would be the best type of forum. Would it be better at a local level? Would it be better at an all-Ireland level? Would it be better if the two governments agreed to it? Would it be better here? But, but let me let me tell you something else. In, in the engagement around Brexit, the small engagement that I had around Brexit, Brexit with the SNP and with the Labour Party. Those are the two people, Keir Stammer particularly and Michael Russell, who is the spokesperson for a thing, both of whom I worked with in the past and in different different realities. I challenged them very early on, challenged them, I asked them very early on in this situation, was there anybody, was there, within their negotiations, within the British government, with their, they with the British government, was there any semblance of anybody who was prepared or capable of looking at the necessity of looking at the constitutional issue right across these islands. Uh, In other words, taking on that Scotland is, you know, looking daily at where the polls are as regards can the SNP win the next constitutional battle or not. Uh, Looking at Ireland from the point of view of where that whole situation is and then looking at their own position within England but looking at it in a broad sense with outside of the the, the old position the precious union or whatever that situation may lead to and one of my big disappointments was that both of those people said there isn't the political there aren't the political people there certainly at the moment 
who are capable or willing to do that, have those conversations, who even see the need for those conversations, which means that within the British system at the moment, where the power base is, to construct or allow the conversations that you're talking about to take place, um, that if they're not seeing those necessities and to see those the, the desirability of those situations, then it's very hard to know which is the not alone which is the best type of forum, but, but well, how how you would ever get to that type of situation. But surely one of the things that we're on the cusp of now is a significant change within unionism, because while the DUP represents the majority of unionists in uh, electoral terms and in terms of its position on Brexit, there's a lot of dissatisfaction within middle class unionism about the position on Brexit. And that's going to create and also within parts of loyalism as well over over Brexit. Surely unionism is going to change significantly at this point. Well, if that's true, then that's the hope. <laughs> if that's true, uh, I suppose my difficulty, difficulty, it's not a difficulty, my question is, will it change or when it, when it comes to the crunch, will it retrench? That's my fear. If you, if you propose tomorrow that there's a series of fora in Belfast or Northern Ireland and a series of fora in Dublin, a series of whatever, whatever way you constructed the situation, would they take place? Or would they allow it just to, to the mavericks to go to it? Right? For example, not that I would want them necessarily to do this, but there, are there any church people saying anything? Are there any non-politicians saying anything? I, the Ulster Unions may talk about Brexit, but will they talk about anything beyond that? Will the, you know, the commercial people, the industrial people will talk about Brexit? But that's safe, because what they're saying is, you know, oh, this is bad for our economy. Right, and I have people, friends of mine, who say, "Take the Dennis, the politics needs to be taken out of this, and what we really need to do here is work on the economics and the social change and all of that." And I can see that argument, and I can understand, and 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 I'm caught between: is that the best place to go into safe territory? Or does unionism need challenged, really challenged, to say you have a responsibility here too? Your responsibility. You see, unionism keeps saying, well, we're in the fort and the fort is ours and we're going to keep the fort. Right? And you say to me, well, what I tell you, the fort has changed a good bit. You know, it's not just all unions within the fort, it's getting a whole lot of niceness within the fort now, too. But they keep saying, but the fort's ours and we're going to hold on and we're going to keep the fort. And if we have to move back on, you know, and create new barriers, I don't know where that tension between do you go soft, do you go quietly, do you go gently, do you go into the con, or do you go into a more challenged position which says you have a responsibility to talk to us? It comes back, though, also to a point which you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that the European Union recognises that Northern Ireland is different. But the whole point about the Union's position on Brexit, the hardline DUP position, and also uh, ostensibly the ERG position, is that Northern Ireland isn't different. And how does one deal with that tension about the fact that nationalists and the European Union would see Northern Ireland as being different from Great Britain, Mm. whereas unionists would say it isn't? Well, that's what I'm struggling with, <laughs> and I'm not too sure how you see that, except that that is, I think that's where the tension is and where the tension is going to be in the next couple of months, if not years. Some people say, well, there's splits within the DUP, and they're beginning to see that they're... Now, if that be true, then there is hope, right? Because 
it's not that it's not that the splits are the important thing. It's a variety of views that are important, because a variety of views brings about the the need for a variety of discussion and at least looking at things, and being able to say, well, I'm not too sure, or I don't know, or what is the best situation. That at least gives you hope. If you just go back into the situation of whereby. The next, for example, if we go completely back into the situation whereby the DUP fight the next election on the grounds that we must stop Sinn Féin becoming, as they did in the last election, then that doesn't show great hope. The Ulster Unionists, you know, went into this election with an open mind around Brexit and closed their mind after the result. Uh, and we're now hearing them kind of saying, oh, it's an all, all British uh, Brexit. When, when in fact there was an openness there to saying, well, we are a bit different. We're not exactly the same. So that difference. How you get to a situation, I don't know. I think obviously the Irish government, I mean, I don't know where the Irish government foreign affairs are within all of this. I don't have the contact I would have had with them at one time, so I don't really know anymore. They used to be very good at being in behind the scenes, particularly with loyalism, and I'm sure they have all those contacts still going on, and I hope they have, and that they're talking to people, and I'm sure they're talking to the DUP behind the scenes and so forth, and that they're capable of balancing all of that. Um, But... Will we get, for example, those groupings who were the, whatever they were, the 20 or 30 percent who were anti-Brexit within the unionist community to begin to speak into this chaos that we're now living with? Or will they retrench and not speak and just hold their stoom? Uh, I don't know. And I'm fascinated by that. Uh, I had one very interesting conversation recently with three elderly, three, four elderly Presbyterian members of a Presbyterian congregations within, I think, the heartlands of, of unionism. And I pressed them on this. And the, the, there would have been two initial thing was, you know, a lot of our people don't even talk about it would be the first one. But this one that was fascinating, which then brought on a conversation, was that the, I think the most hard line of the four people in the Presbyterians said, I think if I was to sum it up, I would say that the attachment to the union, there is a, there is a, uh, a lessening of attachment to the union was his words, a lessening of attachment to the union, which engaged the other three people in speaking about that, in the in the way that some of them said, well, there would be no orange men in our congregation. <laughs> and then and somebody else said, well, there would be good for you orange men in my congregation, right? And the view was that there's not a lot of discussion around the future, but that they would recognize the lessening of attachment to the union. So perhaps we end where we began and say that what we need then is the civic conversations, including within unionism, that go beyond the political party system. Yes. Dennis Bradley, thank you very much indeed. And Tracing the final part, we've got to the end of Dennis's interview. Um, 
it talks about the EU and the role that they have they play here. That's right. And this is an interesting take on things, which is that, you know, is Brexit and the border necessarily a negative? Actually, in a sense, I think what Dennis is saying is that there was a positive sign to that, mm. which is that we now have a commitment from Europe, from the European Union, to be engaged in how we resolve our differences within Ireland Mm -hmm. and actually that we need a resolution to how the border operates and that resolution must be considered at a European level. So in a sense, the historic disputes within Northern Ireland that uh, are in a sense also something to be resolved by Britain and Ireland now actually have to be resolved at an even higher level, which is the European Union level. And perhaps... Perhaps that's a positive. Mm. Perhaps by having other people come in with more experience of international conversations, perhaps that gives us opportunities that weren't there before. Mm. Okay. It's an interesting idea that Brexit might not all be negative. Yeah. Well, I'd welcome that. Welcome that. I'm for sure others do as well. Um, he also talks on, if you like, the unionist risk. The fact that on the constitutional question, the unionist community can only lose once. That's right. And, you know, he also talks not just about the the risks within loyalism, but also the risks that the DUP is dealing with. Mm. Because, and we've heard this, we've heard this from when I I, I was talking to people in the Newton Arts Road. There are are concerns within loyalism about the extent to which the DUP represents them. Mm. And I think going back to the point about Brexit, we know that there are uh, concerns within middle class unionism between the the business representatives within unionism uh, that the DUP position on Brexit has not served them well firstly by arguing for Brexit and secondly by arguing for a position which uh, means that the withdrawal agreement didn't go through mm. so there are concerns within that part of unionism about the DUP but also when you go to working class loyalist areas, there are concerns about the the quality of DUP leadership uh, and the extent to which they represent them. Mm, okay, well, thank you, Paul. Thanks for that. Um, that's that for that's us for this episode of the Forward Together podcast. Keep an eye out for future episodes through hollywelltrust.com, sluggerotool.com, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Um, thanks to. Dennis for taking the time uh, to meet with Paul and to Dee Kern and Emer Doherty for production support. Thanks for listening. The Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland supports this podcast through its media grant scheme and core funding programme.